Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi there. This is Anna David. You're listening to Light Hustler, a podcast about sharing your dark to find your light. If you are someone who's wondering, well, am I a light hustler? Should I be sharing my dark to find my light? I have news for you. I have a quiz for you. Go to lighthustler.com slash quiz and take the quiz. It asks you a bunch of questions to determine, are you ready? Are you someone who should be sharing your story through articles, through posts, through books, through podcasts, through whatever medium suits your fancy? Just go to lighthustler.com slash quiz and you can take that. So this is, this is a heavy episode, you guys, and it's a really, really special one to me. Um, I get into it. I do an introduction once I start talking to the guests. So I'm going to save this repetition that I sometimes do. But she's this amazing woman. Her name is Stephanie Whittles-Walks, and she's the sister of Harris Whittles, who was this incredibly talented comedian and TV writer who died of a heroin overdose. She's written a book about it available now. I highly recommend you going out there and getting this book. Everything is horrible and wonderful. A tragic comic memoir of jet genius, heroin, love, and loss. I was lucky enough to meet Stephanie a month or two ago and uh, have her on my podcast. And she's just the most delightful. What you don't know is she's very pregnant and just a delightful, wonderful, warm woman Um, telling a really tragic story that is all too common. So I'm going to give you Stephanie, and I'm going to say, it's better with the lights on, so go out there and hustle your light, Light Hustler. Hi there, you're listening to Light Hustler, a podcast about addiction, recovery, um, every fun topic like that. Thank you so much for listening, and if you, what's been happening lately is I have been reading the reviews on iTunes and it is so amazing, except those ones every now and then that are incredibly mean. And to you people, I am incredibly sorry for my so-called annoying voice, but those of you who write the nice things, and there are so many of you, it is amazing because I get to hear what you like. I get to hear that you like my putting up the Facebook live episodes or the storytelling episodes. It is an amazing way to make me feel good and to tell me what you like. I want to do a show you guys like. So this is all to say that if you have anything to say about the show, even if it's negative, put it there on iTunes. I would be so, so, so grateful. Now, this is a special episode, not only because I haven't done one in person in months and months and months, but it is unlike any uh, interview I've done, God, no pressure. Um, I'm about to interview Stephanie Whittles-Walks. She is a Houston-based author who also owns a theater 
in Houston, and she has written a book called Everything is Horrible and Wonderful, a tragic comic memoir of genius, heroine, love, and loss. It is a memoir about losing her brother, Harris Whittles, um, a huge comedian, writer, actor, and it is I have I have not only never read a story, I've never read, I've read every addiction memoir out there, so please tell me if there is one I've missed, but I've never read one by the sibling. Um, and frankly, a first book, whatever, I had my expectations. It is one of the best books I have re- ever read about addiction. I, I am just completely centered. I read it about a month ago, and I feel like I read it last night. And um, I never knew Harris Whittles. I knew of him. And I now feel like I knew him from reading this book, which isn't something that um, I'm used to having happen. Um, I'm almost going to let her talk. I met Stephanie about a month ago. Um, Mutual friend of ours, Jeff Ehrlich, podcaster king, so you probably know who he is, had a dinner party for Stephanie um, to let people know about this book. And um, I, I was immediately drawn to her. I got the book. I read it. I emailed her. Like, I, I just can't believe how much I love this book. So here she is sitting with me. I'm finally going to allow you to say hello, Stephanie. Say hello. Hello, Anna. That was so nice. It's so true. And she's incredibly modest. She's doing, I'm definitely the smallest small timer that, that she's talking to. She's going on NPR. She's going on all the, the late night. What's the late night show? Did you already do it, by the way? The circuit. Yeah, no, I went on one. I went on Seth Meyers. Oh no, but no big deal. She just she just went on Seth Meyers, so not it's not circuit. not a big deal. And just just Aziz is not. And sorry, wrote the foreword to the book, and there are blurbs from Sarah Silverman and all of these amazing people. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and very honored that you had me on. Thank you. Um, well, so so um, there's so much I want to get into, but first let's, let's kind of do it non-chronologically. We were talking before we started recording about how surreal this experience is for you. Yeah. Um, this is your first book yeah. and you got this book deal because you started blogging yeah. on Medium. Yes. Mm-hmm. And tell us what exactly happened. So, um, my brother passed away in February of 2015. I had a one-year-old at the time. My daughter had turned one in January and she was a very difficult baby, you know, a brilliant, beautiful child, but she refused to sleep. And so the only place she would sleep was in the car and I would spend hours in the car with her, just trapped in the car with nothing to do. And I started writing down as a way to process and just kind of like stay afloat uh, when I felt like I was drowning after he died, uh, I started writing all my thoughts down on my iPhone. And this was around, I want to say May or June. So it was three or four months after he passed. And I was just um, in the darkness. I just, my brother and I were, were very close. He was my only sibling Um, When he died, I felt like I just couldn't go on. And the only thing that made me feel not better, nothing made me feel better, but, you know, that made me feel like I was still alive was to write some stuff down and get it out of my body. I I equate it to, like, exercising demons, you know? Right. Um, My husband, who's incredible and has been incredibly supportive throughout this entire process, 
was like, why don't you take all of those notes on your iPhone and put them on the internet? You know, you could write an essay. And I had written, you know, essays before. And so I said, okay, fine. So I published an essay called The New Normal. And uh, it was just this crazy thing where I got so much feedback from people who would say, I had this exact thing happen to me, or I had a brother, sister, husband, wife, mother, father, et cetera, who had addiction and who overdosed. And you express something that I can't express because I'm ashamed or I'm guilty or all, all of these things. Or my, I had somebody reach out to me the other day. My sister died in a fire. My, you know, just any sort of grief, any sort of pain. It was this kind of universal thing that was happening. And, and I was somehow, um, again, didn't make me feel better, but this sense that I wasn't the only person who had experienced this before right. was really meaningful and did something uplifting. Right. So can I, can I ask, how did people find it? How did they even see it? it like, it's, stuff gets shared on the internet. So you wrote it, you pu- you upload it. Yeah. And then suddenly you're getting emails from strangers. Yeah. It just kind of was one of those weird viral mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. It's been read, you know, 500,000 times or, you know, it was just one of those essays that people were just really responding to. And um, it came from my guts. It just came from the, the most honest, authentic play. I, it was not edited. It was just very much like here here's the real deal and and it really got into when I first got the call I got the call that my brother had passed away from the detective here and it, it got into all of this really horrific stuff from there I had an agent reach out to me from the one story yeah I know it's so annoying it's like right it's it like it would be if you weren't such a good writer I would actually hate you but I, <laughs> I know. don't I just cannot believe so that wasn't your first essay I just heard you say you'd written other essays before. I had written essays about um my my daughter has hearing loss and um was born with she wears hearing aids and was born with this kind of permanent disability and so I had written an essay about that. It seems like I write when things are just really shitty. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, my whole thing (laughs) is that we heal through writing. Totally. And then we then have another level of healing when we we find out that people relate to it. Yes. Because it's the isolation. That's totally true. I wish I could write about happy stuff or fiction or something. Well, that's book two. Hopefully, because I really cannot do this again, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, I had this really wonderful woman reach out to me and... I really liked her. She um, she had a five-year-old and a one-year-old. She had her own company here, not here, in New York. It was all woman-run, and she really was was very low pressure. She, mm-hmm. she seemed to know that I was in a very delicate place and said, you know, let's partner up, and if by the end of a year you have something that is marketable or, you know, I can help you try to sell it, if you don't, no big deal. We'll go our separate ways. She was also a former editor, so she was able to help me um, Mm -hmm. kind of organize all of that. And by the end of the year, we did. So you wrote a book proposal. She told you how. I didn't even write a book proposal. What did you do? I wrote the book. You wrote wrote the entire book. You know that I, like, coach people through writing, and I tell them never, ever, ever do that. I... See again. I, it's like I'm working from a place of complete naivety. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know? so you write this book. I wrote the book in about nine months. Wow. 
and she submits it. She did send me a book proposal. Yeah. And I read it and I was like, oh, like no, oh, no. I can't do that. <laughs> I'm just going to write it. So how close is what you turned into what I read? Very close. Wow. The only thing that changed is that um, I had, I think, 52,000 words when I submitted it. And the editor who who purchased it or I don't even know acquired. the acquired. See, I don't even know the terminology. Yeah. Anna. I'm like baby, baby <laughs> goes child. On NPR yes. tomorrow. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> seriously. Um, thank you for telling me that before I go on NPR. Sorry. I don't like really me. No, I need to know these things. So the editor was like, can you, can you bump it up to 60,000 words? And I said, like, frankly, no, I have nothing. I don't have any more to say about this. Like I'm done with this topic. I don't want to talk about it anymore. She was such a, a wonderful editor that she was able to go through and say, okay, this area needs to be flushed out. I don't understand this. Can right. you elaborate and expound on this? And we ultimately ended up with 67,000 words. But the, the, the bulk of it is very raw and unfiltered. And it's um, a very – it's uh, the format is interesting because you cut. Uh, can you talk about the structure? Yeah, Um so the format comes from, okay, there's two story nights. Let me, let me start here. There's two narratives in the story. One is the narrative of finding out Harris had died the day that he died to a year after his death, which in Judaism we call a yard site. And so it's that first year after he died. The second narrative is the day I found out he was a drug addict, which was when he called me three days before my wedding to tell me this news, which was in March of 2013. And then that narrative ends the day that he dies. So there's two things going on. The reason why is because when I started writing, I really needed to do two things. One was what I told you to sort of get out of the darkness. And the other was to figure out why this happened. There's this need when tragic things happen, when, when senseless things happen, to make sense of them. And I wanted to know... Like, to backtrack, how did we get here? What, why did this happen? Did I do everything I could? Did he do everything he could? Was this inevitable? Could this have been avoided? Oh, you know, these questions. I call it, like, a manic investigative phase. Right. That I think is sort of absent from the grief flowchart. Right. Where I just, you know, and I'm a doer. Yeah. So I think I just needed to do something. And so I was really just, like, on this hunt to find an answer. I was, like, this crazy detective, you know, like you know, how do we get from A to B? And so that's kind of how those two narratives unfolded. Have you come any closer to getting an answer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Well, what is it? it I, I don't think it could have been avoided, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I don't think I could have done anything more than I did. I don't think anybody is at fault. I think that, um, as you know far better than I do, this is more your world, addiction is a bitch yeah and uh harris really wanted to be sober he really really did um but ultimately he he couldn't do it 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 didn't the program he was in what whatever he was dealing with it just wasn't enough i i know that nothing we did could have been more than what we did yeah people um i get a lot of emails from family members who ask me ask me what they should do. Like I know. Right. And 
the horrible, horrible thing is that people want to know, oh, oh, it's like, oh, you, what you need to do is you need to cut off contact. Oh, what you need to do is give them all the money in the world. Oh, what you need to do is, and there is no answer because you can do that and then your loved one dies. And what are you supposed to do with that person who told you that that was the answer? Because there isn't one. You know what's crazy? I get those emails, which is yeah. even more nuts to me because I'm right. like, dude, I failed. I, I don't know. Why are you asking me? My right. family member is dead. Right. You know, like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I really, if I said this on Seth Meyers, did you see that drop mm. there? If, if be, if the answer to addiction was being smart and funny and the most charming person and like the most brilliant person in the world, then Harris would still be here. Right. So it's just like, it, it's obvious to me that none of that matters. Right. You know, it's, it is what it is. And I... I wish it ended differently, obviously, but, um, what's very, what's fascinating to me where I, cause your story kind of prompts the detective in anybody because, um, this is the most loving supportive family. And it's not like all addicts come from terrible families. That being said, I know very few sober people or addicts who don't have pretty terrible stories to tell. And so as I'm going through this, and, and it's so clear you're not exaggerating or lying. Like yeah. this, the story's told, this is a, this is a loving family. They, as adults, they go on vacation together by choice. You know, they <laughs> love each other. They like each other. You, and in addition to love each other, they like each other even more yeah. shocking. And, and, um, the, what, what's woven throughout the story is this like, passion he had for life, the way he would go and he would order, he wasn't, you know, overweight, but he would order all these foods, you know, every, you know, thing. And so he could try everything. Excess. So, so I, I, this is an unanswerable question, but where do you think his addiction came from? I mean, yeah, we, so we grew up in the same house, you know, and like, it's all true. Like he always jokes, he used to go to therapists and he'd be like, tell me why your family's fucked up. Right. And he'd be like, I had a great upbringing. Like, right. I literally can't give you any terrible stories. Right. Um, I think there was a combination of things. One, what you just talked about, he had a true propensity for overindulgence. Right. That was just from day one. You know, I tell the story in the book about my mother would, like, let us... We, we grew up in a house with very little rules. Right. We, we had very little structure. My parents were... You know, I joke like we were orphans. We lived in the same house with these people that we really liked. Right. He fed us really well and treated <laughs> us nicely and took us on vacations to Disney World. Um, but we just didn't have a ton of structure. And yeah. so she would let Harris kind of like get his own grocery cart and fill it up to the brim with whatever the hell he wanted to eat. And Heaven. there just wasn't a lot of limits. Yeah. And so I think that the lack of, you know, limits maybe. But I don't want to blame – I'm not blaming my mother here. I'm saying, like, I think – because I got the same stuff, right. you know, and, and I didn't right. have that. Um, but I think he had that personality trait. He was very pleasure-driven mm-hmm. just in general. He was obsessive about everything. He loved the band Fish, which <laughs> I, I apologized for to this day, you know, on his behalf. Um, <laughs> but he would follow them around the country. He saw hundreds of fish shows. He – couldn't just see one. He had to see hundreds. You know, that was part of who he was. He also, um, 
was constantly thinking and working and his brain just did not ever stop. You know, he had this, he always had a screen in front of his face and he was always either tweeting or writing down a joke or writing down a thought that he had. He was always writing pilots and in development for things, some of which were rejected after spending years on them. So I think that was hard to deal with. I think he had to shut down, you know, like I, I think his brain was very powerful. Right. And I think he probably suffered with some depression. We, we, we do have that in the family. Right. Well, but I'm like, who Jew- doesn't? Jewish, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's part of our blood. Exactly. Yeah. Like, we're just sort of wired that way. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, he got really successful really young. He got his first job at 22. Let's talk for anybody who who isn't familiar with his career. Let's uh, the trajectory is insane. It's wild. Yeah, it doesn't happen to people. Yeah, he um, he went to Emerson College for TV TV production or writing. He moved to LA for an internship in his last semester of school at Comedy Central, mm-hmm. and he was nannying. He was nannying these two little French boys. And that was his day job. And um, he loved nannying. He's, you know, he's, he's like, like a pied piper. Kid, yeah. Totally. And uh, Sarah Silverman saw him at an open mic. And at 22, a couple months later, she emailed him and said, hey, I have an opening on my show. Do you want to write for me? And he was like, um, yes. And, and anybody, but if you want juicy stuff, that's it. That email's in the book. There, yeah. and and in the book are, um, you know, Stephanie was just talking about how he would write notes on his iPhone of set ideas, and those are in the book. So you yeah. get to see really how his brain worked. Totally. But I, yeah, I love that that Sarah Silverman email was there because she was sort of like, you might not even be into this kind of a thing, which is it's why like, she's the greatest person. Right. Talk about humility. Right. Like she really. Truly is great in that way. Very humble as a human being. Just like, yeah, I mean, you might they might not even be interested in this. Yeah. You know, like, hello. He grew up on her, you know. Right. Um, so then from there, he worked on the, in that writer's room for a couple years. He was hired at Parks and Recreation on, on NBC. He worked in that writer's room. He played Harris, the animal control guy. It was a recurring role. Who was a stoner. Who right. was a fish head. Uh, basically himself. And then uh, he invented the word humble brag. He wrote a book about the word humble right. brag. He, you know, I always say like he wrote jokes for Obama that were read in Zach Galifianakis's Between Two Ferns. Right. Did he so, officially write on that? Or he gave he, j- jokes for it? I think he wrote on, you know, certain episodes. Yeah. But he was like the punch-up guy is what they say. Like yeah. if, if if somebody needed a joke or like, this scene is flat. Can you say something weird that's going to make it funny? They would send it to Harris. Right. Um, the other thing I was going to say actually earlier about the overindulgence is that because we had no limits, we were able to watch as much TV as we wanted. And Harris was just a consumer of comedy from the day he could talk. Um, he would watch hours and hours and hours and hours of TV and movies. And he was like an encyclopedia of comedy knowledge. So... Yeah, I mean, between the age of, he was a prolific podcaster. Also, mm-hmm. I mean, you can, if you want to hear him, just Google his name, and you'll find him on any podcast that ever existed. By the way, in, it's either in the book or you told me about um, listening to P- him on Pete Holmes. Yes. So since meeting you and reading the book, and I became all obsessive and started to go down the rabbit hole, I downloaded that, and I couldn't take it. 
and I didn't even know him, I was starting to get so down. I, I was like, how did she listen to this? I know. Um, it, it, he went on, Pete Holmes, a few times. You, make it, you made it weird. But this time, the one I was listening to was he came on to talk about his addiction. Yeah. And did you not hear that until after he died? Oh, no. I heard that um, he had just gotten out of a rehab, and I knew that he had relapsed. And the, and the podcast is him talking about how he was sober. Oh. So I heard it while oh. I knew he was using, but he was telling everybody that he was clean and saying these things like, if I use again, I know I'm going to die and I can't do that to my family. Right. And I was furious with him. That, that was where my, the rage part of my, my, my relationship with him really kicked off because for a long time, my role was to be the supportive confidant. Right. And I played it begrudgingly, but I played the role. At that point, I was just like, you are so full of it. And, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was painful to listen to for many reasons. So let's talk about you, your finding out that he was an addict. Before you got this text, was it a text from him? No, he called. He called two days before your wedding. <laughs> Did you have any idea that there was a problem? So I guess I should have added this in the section where you were asking me if, why do I think, you know, he used or whatever. Harris was a recreational drug user. Right. Forever. Yeah. We did a lot of drugs together as right. kids. I mean, I stopped, you know, in my 20s and he didn't. Um, but I know I knew that he smoked weed mm-hmm. regularly. I knew that he used Vicodin. Um, recreationally, I knew that he took hallucinogenics and I mean, you know, he went to fish shows. Yeah. Like he was in that world. He talked candidly about being a recreational drug user. That was kind of one of his things. He would go on podcasts and talk about like, yeah, I just, you know, that that's, it's cool. I can do it. Um, right. he was prescribed Oxycontin for back pain because okay. he had this chronic kind of back condition. And the story is so cliched, and then it was too expensive. And when he called me, but to too tell expensive me, for him. Well, he was spending four grand a month on, on pills. Wow. When he called to tell me I'm an addict. Right. So, yeah. And his accountant, I remember at that point, was like, Where is this money going? Like, you're spending $70,000 a year, and you're not accounting for it. So I think it was probably easier to hide mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if no one was able to track that. So he found a dealer. Yeah. And he just and so that call a few days before your wedding was that I'm I'm a heroin addict. No, 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 no. Um, it was that I I'm addicted to oxy mm-hmm. to opiates. Mm-hmm. And I say in the book, you know, when he finally. A year and some change later, confessed that he had been using heroin. That hit us so much harder than the pills. It was like, what I say is like, you know, my my dad was a physician. It's easier to uh, stomach taking a pill that is medicinal 
than the idea of like cooking this brown liquid and sticking it in your body with a needle. I mean, it's just, it was like, <laughs> it's so silly because we knew he was an addict. It wasn't like, it was like, hello, this is like not news. But I mean, I think literally everybody reacts like that. And that's why we're in the midst of an opiate epidemic yeah. is what do you, you know, what do you mean? This comes from the doctor. This is, I needed this. Exactly. They needed this. And exactly. so, and so he was honest with you. When yes. he said, and wasn't it just you and not the parents? Oh, yeah. He said, don't tell mom and dad. Yeah. Don't tell them. That was a, re- a recurring theme. And you didn't? No, I didn't. And I I just tried to stay really calm, and I asked a bunch of questions. I asked him if he was going to go to rehab. I asked him what his plan was. He assured me that he had it under control, which was something he assured me, you know, a gazillion times. Mm-hmm. Um I got pregnant really shortly, shortly after my wedding, mm-hmm. unintentionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and once I was like two, three months pregnant and just so worn down, I just, it just came out. I had to tell them. Mm-hmm. And that's when it kind of became more of a family issue at that point. And so in how many, he went to treatment three times? Thrice. Yes. Thrice. And, um, I mean, I know this is like, so what did there, is there anything you would have done differently? I wish that we could have convinced him to come where we were. I wish that we could have been closer to him. You know, it's really, it was really hard for us because we were in Texas and he was in California and So he would go to rehab and he would be really communicative with us during that process. And then inevitably he would get out of rehab and the calls and the texts would become less frequent when he was falling off the wagon again. So, you know, I wish that we could have had closer proximity. I wish that he would have gone for a longer amount of time. The the digging that I've done and the research that I've done seems to suggest that you got to go for longer than 30 days, that 30 days is sort of like a high in itself. And I saw that with him. I saw that he would feel great and, you know, and then the just one more time thing would kind of hit. And, you know, Harris had an impressive ego, (laughs) very impressive. Like one time I remember he went to an audition and it didn't go well. And afterwards my dad was like, well, what, what could you have done differently? He's like, the casting director was a fucking idiot. You know, like that was <laughs> right. his outlook. Like he was not guilty of anything. Right. And so his, he really did think that he could control everything himself. He never would, um, give any, give up that control. He never wanted to surrender to a higher power. That was tough. Cause he was, he didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. So that was a tough step for him. Mm-hmm. I think he was trying to work through the steps, but he just got hung up on that first one. Yeah. He was never powerless. Yeah. He never wanted to admit to being powerless. Um, yeah. And he's certainly not alone with, um, I, you know, I think the, I know the idea of God is the biggest turnoff about 12 step to most people. That being said, I know all sorts of atheists who love the 12 steps and yeah. that, you know, it's, it, you know, I, what I didn't know, you know, for my first 10 years of sobriety was that, was that there were other ways. Right. 
I didn't believe that. I believed like jails, institutions, or death. And now I know differently. I know people who, um, you know, who, who get sober through yoga, who get sober, you know, it, it, who, smart recovery. There's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But um, I, I think, you know, yes, there are, there's such a thing as a high-functioning addict, but he was so high-functioning. Oh, insane. So high-functioning. I mean, he was the, the, de- the poster child for a high-functioning addict. You would never know. People are shocked, but you would never know. Well, and I, like I said, I never met him, knew all about him. And I remember the day that news came, I was like, what? That kid? I mean, I could see, I could see by his eyes, I knew, I could see when he was, you know, there was certain Parks and Rec episodes he would be on for animal control. There's one that they, image that they use often that I actually use in the book where he has a vice on his head in in the show. And I can tell Mm -hmm. that he's so, so messed up Mm -hmm. in that. You know, I just know, I know his face so well. I know, I know the contours. I know everything. I know the the shadows and what they mean. Like, you know, I can see that stuff, but, but he was so charming and he was so good at at covering it up and you know part of his deal and his shtick and who he was was he was this very like kind of chill mild-mannered guy so and he was weird and he was wacky and so probably was a good persona to hide being an addict the other thing I talk about in the book is that he was so busy he was so busy so you know, the line of, was he using work as an excuse? Was it actually an excuse? Is really blurry to me, too. Mm-hmm. And we should mention, when he died, he was in the process of moving to New York to be a starring role on Master of None. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. It was, it was going to be huge. The Airbnb tab was still open on his computer when he died. And... and so so and this is I, I tell me if I'm crying too much but once he died you went to the house and were there things you found there that were surprising um I was in such a a daze I mean it was such a crazy time I I just remember being very protective. I, I, I was like wanting to shred everything. I was just really wanting to make sure that his privacy was going to be honored. And, and, you know, the tabloids had already kind of gotten into this and I didn't want people digging through his trash. And, you know, I was, I kind of kept, Harris had all of these toys and like literal toys, like stuffed animals. And we, everyone called him a boy man, you know, mm-hmm. he was just like Tom Hanks's character in big. And so I wanted to know what, why do you have this or what, where did you acquire this bizarre thing? Or what was the backstory on this thing? And, um, you know, we, we found his computer. We found, I had his phone. A big part of my detective phase was trying to look through texts and, and phone logs and messages and emails and, try to see like I don't even know what right I don't even know did you find texts with drug dealers and things like that I found a, a month or so after he died is when I first checked the call log mm-hmm. I hadn't thought to do that and I did find 
that he had called his dealer seven days before he got out of sober living. Right. Oh, that's in the book. Before he passed away. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So, and and the book, by the time you guys hear this, because it's coming out the first week in March, right? This book is out yesterday. It's out yesterday. Or Monday. What day are we? What is this day? Today, you guys, this is, if you're hearing this, this is not relevant. So don't get confused and think that you are living on February 28th. But we right now. February 26th is when it came out. And what is that like? What is this like? How surreal is it to go and be talking about a book about your brother's life? It's so weird. It's so weird. I, 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 whenever I see somebody holding it, I feel like you're holding my, my soul, like my diary. It, like it's very, I wrote this thing, you know, in this very specific time and place and it's so personal and you know, it's all out there now. I mean, I, I had, I used to teach, I was a teacher in my, in my former life and I had a student text me this really long, beautiful thing about how he had read the book and it meant so much. And I'm such a hero to him. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, you read the book, <laughs> like you're going to know. <laughs> and that's, that's in the book too, that email, right? Or something like that. The, yes. There, there is, this was another student who emailed yeah. me, who texted me this morning to actually right. say, I read the book in one night. Right. A lot of people are saying, I read the book in one night. Yeah. I read, I read it book, in two. You know, <laughs> just like, wow, you know, you're consuming all of our <laughs> deepest, darkest. In 24 hours. Secrets and pain. Yeah. yeah. But it, it is, um, it is really surreal. I, I feel like as a result of writing this book, it, you know, you alluded to this in the beginning that writing is really therapeutic and the way to kind of get past trauma. I am just a hundred percent different. I mean, my, my life looks different. Everything I'm doing with my time is different. I have reinvented so much about who I am because the old person is dead. You know, I, like I say in the book, when, when you have something this traumatic happen, it feels like a bomb has been dropped on you, your house or your life and there's nothing left and you have to figure out how to rebuild and start over. And it's been this very strange experience where I was in the most catatonic, depressed, grief stricken agony I've ever been in. And I stayed in that place for a long time. And I was, I'm not one of those people that was like, I'm going to put on a happy face. I never did. I Mm -hmm. never put on a happy face. I felt all the feelings. I told everyone to fuck off. I I was, I was terrible. I was terrible. And then writing it, I think was helping me process it. And then by the time we got to a year, all of these feelings of, of doom and that nothing matters and that I could just give up now because my world is shit and everyone's going to die turned into like this weird optimistic notion of nothing matters and we're all going to die. And it was like really freeing. And I realized that there's no time like that cliche of like, you know, embrace the now, like it really did kind of happen to me. And I was like, Oh, I'm miserable in this job and I have been for a while. So I'm going to quit that. Great. Done. Okay. And now I really want to open this theater and that makes no sense. Cool. Okay, I'll do that. Right. And, and sure, we'll publish this book. And, you know, like this, and a lot of my like anxiety and as we say in Judaism, spilkas, like all my crazy stuff that I used to sort of manufacture in my brain kind of went away because I just 
was like, okay, well, I've survived all this terrible shit. It wasn't just my brother. I was dealing with this stuff with my daughter too. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it just has been this weird, um, experience where I feel, um, like the more terrible things happen, the more like authentically I can live my life. It's so weird. What's interesting to me, I told you I had to turn off the, the Pete Holmes episode, but part that I remember the best before I did that was, was Harris talking about how, um, like how insignificant we are, how, like, if you think about like, we're on this planet and what do we matter? And here we live 80 years. And that's kind of what you're reminding me of. 100 million thousand gajillion percent. I, I believe that like if I could bottle one thing and like package it as my worldview, that is it. I, we are so, I completely agree. Yeah. We are so insignificant. All the stuff we worry about constantly does not matter. It's like, like we're going to be gone really soon. Yeah. We're here for so short a time. Yeah. And it's not like I suddenly have this like newfound optimism. Hell no. I mean, like you said, I'm Jewish girl. Like, yeah. I don't, we don't, I don't work that way. I don't, I'm not yeah. wired that way. But I do have a very healthy sense of who fucking cares, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> it's like this, um, which I think has helped me too, like being a mom and, you know, that whole don't sweat the small stuff. You know, like with my daughter, when you have a baby and the first day they say, hey, your kid has this issue you can never fix, here right. you go. It's like all the other stuff that normal parents worry about, like that I'm so envious of that all my friends got to worry about, like baby acne. And I don't even know what normal people worry about, how much TV their kid watches. I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Right. Because I'm like, we actually had a thing to worry about that took up so much room that that other stuff just didn't, I didn't have time or emotional space for it. So, you know, I, I feel like, there's this similar like grief process, way smaller scale that I went through when, when my daughter was diagnosed, but it was that same issue of like, I can't control this. And that's what happened with Harris. It was like when she was one month old, he went into rehab the first time. And so this, I went to school for directing. Okay. Like I love control. Right. I, I used to love control, you know? Right. Now I understand that I have none. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am powerless. Right. I can As put my, all are. my best foot forward, but truly it's not up to me, you know? Yeah. And I just feel like every time something happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just, it's just not really in my hands. Well, and in the book we go through your journey and, and there's a part where you're like, Oh, so she wears hearing aids and then she hears perfectly. I think. <laughs> right. So what really, what does it matter? She's hearing everything. We are totally. And now, I mean, bo the book was written when she was, I think when it was over, she was two, she's four. Now at three, we had to have her speech evaluated. She was on a five-year-old level. They won't even let her into special ed because there's no deficit. She talks, right more than any child. I, I want to tell her to stop talking. Right. You know, she never right. shuts up. Right. It's like all the stuff that I was worried about didn't come true, you know? And Harris, Harris is the one that gave me the best advice with her, who always gave me the best advice. But with her, he gave me the most incredible advice. It was when she was one month old and he came to visit and 
Ugh, I'm like tearing up thinking about it. And he was like, um, don't put your shit on her. Right. Like you're fucked up about this. Not her. She is a baby. Let her be a baby. Just let her be a chill, happy baby. This is always going to be normal to her. Right. You're the one that's making an issue of it. Right. <laughs> I was just like so wise, you know, and I kind of filed it away and I pull it out when I'm tripping about her. Cause I still do. I mean, she's my child and you know, we still have to go to the eye doctor and cause kids have a higher risk for sight issues and we still have to go get her hearing checked every six months. And there's things that come up where I go, okay, just take a breath and know that all of this worrying that you're doing isn't going to change the outcome. Right. Um, and we should mention you are pregnant. <laughs> How pregnant are you? Oh my God. I think it's 128 weeks, whatever that is. I'm having a baby in May. And you're going to name him. Okay. So it's a boy, mm-hmm. which is just really incredibly emotional for all of us. We're very thrilled that we're, I'm saying we, my whole family that we're giving birth to a baby boy. Mm -hmm. Um, so in Judaism, you name your, uh, babies after dead people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, so obviously this child will be named after Harris. Yeah. We're really excited about so we have to start wrapping up. Do you have any final, you know, um, most of the people who listen to this podcast are in recovery already. I get plenty of emails from people who are seeking recovery. Um, do you have any final message? No pressure. I mean, your family just loves you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I feel like I was just on that roller coaster with him just very much so and just I was always rooting for him and I always wanted him to succeed and to beat it and was willing to do whatever I could to make that happen so I guess for Harris I mean I can't speak to anybody else's family but for him he was never alone he always had people that loved him and supported him and um, I don't know I, I wish you the best of luck I hope you stay sober yeah, and maybe if you can get physically close to your family, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because, you know, he lived alone. Yeah. He was alone, and that must enable something, you know? You don't have somebody there to come home to, and... I mean, I should clarify, he could have not been alone. <laughs> yeah, and he was, like, he was under 30, like, yeah. you know, and exactly. very successful, so he didn't need a roommate. No, he did not. And and a lot of people that age were living alone. Yeah, so, exactly. But, yeah, um, I cannot thank you enough, Stephanie, for doing this. I thank you for having me on. I really do. Thank you. So please go get her book. Again, it's called Everything is Horrible and Wonderful, a tragic comic memoir of genius heroine love and loss and and that is something he used to say correct everything is horrible yeah, and wonderful. he he everybody should go look look at his twitter it is just the funniest place you've ever been it's at twiddles t-w-i-t-t-e-l-s um he had a tweet that was the most brilliant tweet i think i've ever heard read seen it said let's stop finding a new witch of the week and burning them at the stake we're all horrible and wonderful and figuring it out 
And that is a great note to end on. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, And, oh, I now have a a sign-off, by the way. Um, It's better with the lights on, so go out there and hustle your light, light hustler. Thank you. Thank you.